Cracks and Pomo will be releasing a zine featuring a variety of writers, some of whom have been featured on this podcast. To order a copy or to make a contribution to our funds, please DM at Cracks and Pomo. So we're back at Cracks and Postmodernity with Eric Dose, also known as Hamburger Helpless, uh, a meme page on Instagram that I found you through. Lots of fun throwback videos, all kinds of compilations, very creative. Also as a musician, plays harp, you compose, you're a lyricist, you're just an all-around artist. So Eric, first of all, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you for having me. So before we, we're going to talk a little bit about Camille Paglia. We're both big fans. You post a lot of her old videos. I want to talk about your music. So first off, tell us a little bit about your influences. Like who inspires your sound, your artistry, etc. Well, I started playing harp in 2012 um, uh, when I was in Oregon um, for a graduate school program. And a very dear friend of mine, Caleb, um, his mother, Jody gave me a little harp when we uh, kind of bonded over our mutual love of Joanna Newsom. And I said, you know, I've, I've wanted to, uh, to take up harp for some time. I'd been a guitarist before that. I think uh, my first instrument was cello. Um, so I'd been playing music all my life, um, and I have, like, countless inspirations and influences. But um, when I started playing harp, a lot of my rhythmic sense was gleaned from the kind of rhythmic interventions uh, on the harp that uh, that I heard through Joanna Newsom, who incorporates a lot of um, kind of like West African polyrhythm, um, over which she plays like kind of just American folk chords. Um, so I found that really inspiring, just in the physicality of playing the instrument. Um, but in, t- in terms of songwriting, I think she made a mark on me too, because I have more of a narrative sense of composition that I kind of gleaned from her work. But I also have a lot of inspiration um, from Steely Dan, like Donald Fagan and Walter Becker. Um, They're kind of like jazz uh, intervention on pop. Um, I I also take a lot of inspiration from Joni Mitchell, the way she um, thinks through her instrument, not in a kind of self-conscious or representational mode, but really these kinds of the reality of ideas on the instrument and through her lyrics, the way those kind of take shape her percussive style on the guitar also informed my percussive style on the harp um also 90s pop um in general like soul and r&b is things from the 70s and uh 80s and 90s um i love uh, mariah carey i love uh i love a lot of that stuff yeah so before we get into mariah for all the lambs out there no so i listened to some of your tracks and i was telling you before like i got this um this kind of like old neo soul vibe. So like if we're thinking late 90s, early 2000s, Badu, D'Angelo. But it has this like very rich texture that you could like those types of artists really, you know, they had because they were so deeply rooted in the old style of soul. Yeah. But also the other thing I noticed, it reminded me of J. Cole's album For Your Eyes Only, which is super jazzy. But also like I feel like the phrasing, the cadences, like, I don't know, gave me that kind of vibe. So it's an interesting mix. Uh, Thank you. I've never heard that record. um, You should. But, 
Yeah, but the yeah the comparisons to the um, or the allusions to to Erica Badu and D'Angelo make a lot of sense. Um, those are definitely in the air. Um, as I was, uh, I don't want to say concocting because that sounds a certain way. Um, but when when my sounds was really forming and around 2017, 2018, when I started taking um, myself on the harp more seriously in my own compositions, um, that was definitely in the air. That kind of uh, neo-soul chord progressions were really important to me in carving out my sound on the harp, especially with the harp being a kind of diatonic instrument where I'm kind of contending with levers to change keys. Um, I don't want to say that there was like... I leave a lot up to intuition when I'm composing, um, but there is a kind of thoughtfulness that has to happen uh, when I'm like thinking about what key I'm in and what key I want to go to, what chords I'm using, what colors, all that. Yeah. What about Sade? Is she an influence? <laughs> Absolutely, 100%. Yeah, I mean, Diamond Life was also really important to me. Um, I remember summer 2018 really digging into uh, what's, I think it's a song called Sally, which is about the Salvation Army. Um, I loved that. Uh, I loved that kind of way of posing um, kind of narrative material that, you know, these are love songs, but they're kind of posed through different characters and vignettes and scenarios. And the videos, too, are very interesting. I know. Yeah, yeah. That, There's always like, a story. And that's kind of storm-blown yeah. video for uh, uh, Sweetest Taboo. Yeah. The rain is just yeah. drenching the windows, and there they are, like, rehearsing. And there's this kind of, like, I don't know if it's, like, a love triangle or some kind of, like, unhappy yeah. affair. Because Sweetest Taboo, that one and Is It a Crime, the videos are, like, a continuation of each oh, other. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. But no, so on to Mariah. The reason I thought of Mariah is because... Amy Winehouse, there's some quote from her where, like, she was talking to her producer who was mixing her track, and she's like, I forget how she said it in her, like, you know, her cocky kind of British. Um, she was like, there are too many harps on this track. I sound like fucking Mariah, Mariah Carey. You gotta get rid of the harps. <laughs> so when I was listening to the harp, I was like, oh, Mariah. But, I mean, other than that, like, there's something about... Um, Maybe like Butterfly era Mariah, where it's like that's like it's beginning to play with hip hop, but like it's really very much soul music, but really rich layering texture between the vocals, the the live instruments. Um, that's what it made me think of. A little bit. Yeah, well, I would say Winehouse is a huge inspiration too. I mean, obviously, it's been a long time that I've I've uh, kind of her music's been embedded in in my soul, but. Um, yeah, there's a lushness to the music of Mariah Carey. There's a kind of um, continuation of the dream of, like, Minnie Ripperton um, that Minnie Ripperton fully realized in her time, in her time on this earth. Um, but there is that kind of dreamy, almost hallucinatory quality. It's a fantasy. It's, it's a fantasy. all about fantasy. It's all about fantasy. Um, yeah. It's interesting how the fantasy complex arose for her because i mean part of it was the mixed race like feeling like she never fit in the divorce it was an ugly divorce so like always trying to escape and still to this day she's trying to escape you can see it yeah yeah yeah. all the kind of troubles um that palia describes as motivating great 
artists and yes. you know visionaries on the outside uh, as she says at the end of butterfly she's always someone who's on the outside like this is the thing with inclusion and like like if you're always included if you never feel on the outside then like no one's gonna create great art like it's the alien yeah, i mean and the, the whole vibe of of like inclusive discourses it is so patronizing and such a pat on the head and it's not it doesn't stoke anything that would that would uh create that, that you know that would inspire a creative soul um it's just uh it's been said on this podcast it's the great loop of it all yes <laughs> it, it's true and she i mean mariah's i feel like she's so underappreciated because all right everyone knows she has a great voice but she gets written off as this, like, ditzy pop star. And I'm like, okay, this woman's a true musician. Because, first of all, like, the way she arranges her vocals, layers them, then she writes her own music. The lyrics are fascinating. Yeah. The words, the vocabulary, like... But the imagery, too, the themes are, like... I don't I just feel like... Also because she's an obnoxious diva. People don't like that. Her, her insanity is one of the most compelling aspects of her work. You either love it or hate it, though. I love, there's this, like, fantastic clip from, like, maybe 10 years ago where she's celebrating Christmas on Valentine's Day. And it's, like, this little handheld uh, moment with her assistant. And um, it's it's been called um, the sequel to Inland Empire. And and she's just going on and on about how it's okay to celebrate Christmas on Valentine's Day, that the two can coexist. And they're listening to this recording of her and her mother. And she's like, and she's like, it's funny that we're right by there. She's like, the student of Juilliard made her debut at Lincoln Center. Like, oh, my God, the, the gray gardens of it all. Speaking of, speaking of, we are on, what is this, Columbus in like 68th, 69th on the street. So if you hear sirens and beeping, it's because we're on the streets of New York um, enjoying a lovely cafe. uh, Which I would say is another uh, important kind of inspiration and influence on the record. Um, There's a lot of street sounds, a lot of just like kind of... um, uh, sound bites of people speaking, just yes, weird internet memes and up, things, yeah. which was kind of my way to represent what I do on the Instagram page. Yes. Um, but it was also this kind of uh, way to capture... These songs were kind of these, like, Tom O'Bedlin, Tom O'Bedlin kind of songs, these kind of mad songs that uh, I wanted to preserve. This, like, asylum quality... It's like wandering yeah, a madhouse, kind yeah. of like the speech of crazy people, just kind of weaving in and out of the work. So tell people, like, what are some of, like, yeah, where do you get some of those clips from? Who's, who are we quoting? It's really interesting when you see them pieced together. Yeah, um, they're, they're, it's all kind of varied. Um, some of them are, like, some of them are, like, trannies that I love, like, um, like Jose Costello Branco. Uh, or uh, Koki Toki is on one of the tracks. Also, my dear friend Kara Cunningham um, is reading my astrological chart across yeah. a few of the tracks. I included that. Um, I don't know. I thought it was important to to uh, to, ca- to capture these vo- these voices and these moments in time. Um, and kids are so obsessed with like gender bending and all that why not include these bizarre voices from the periphery um 
Yeah. Yeah. And you got the, the Red Scare clip when they're like, um, what if we carry little guns around in our little purses? That was a fun. I forgot yeah. about that line. Yeah, that's iconic. Yeah. Iconic preceded by the Barbara Walters. Uh, speaking to Mar- she's read she's reading Mar- uh, Nicki Minaj lyrics to Mariah Carey. She's like, I'm quick is to check a bitch if she is out of line. I forgot about <laughs> that. Speaking of Barbara Walters, I saw Barbara Walters across the street coming out of the abc building many years ago many years ago it was halloween 2000 like 12 her ghost yeah so she she used to roam around here quoting Nicki minaj barbara barbara walters all right so we're gonna get into pallium um uh, and I should just tell everyone, I have my vintage copy, my first edition of Sexual Personae that my brother was very kind to buy for me from Left Bank Books for way too much money. Um, but Sexual Personae, so this came out, what was it, 92, 90, 1990? Yeah, so, okay, tell everyone, because if you listen to this podcast, you have to know who she is, to talk about her all the time. She's actually read some of my pieces, thanks to our friend Glenn Belverio, who's awesome. Glenda. Um, all right, so tell people, like, yeah, your first forays into Camille, what drew you, etc. Well, the first time I'd heard of Camille, um, she was kind of posed as a boogeyman um, in the kind of uh, academic, this was like 10 years ago, the kind of academic circle I was in uh, that I no longer really associate with. I was in a graduate program uh, at the University of Oregon. Um, where I kind of felt as a year, as that year and a half that I was there progressed, I felt less and less like I belonged there. Um, and I kind of really started butting heads uh, with um, the ideas that I was given to eat, you know, and I felt more like turf that was being uh, claimed or staked. Turf or turf? <laughs> Stop. Stop. Yeah. For real though, no, but I felt like um, like I, I was land to be conquered for an intellectual battle that was not my own. And um, it was there too that I had heard uh, Polly's name spoken with contempt by the feminist professor. During one class, she said, um, it was a class on, uh, where we were discussing like sexual assault. And she said something. I don't remember what exactly she said. She's like, oh, and then you have, you have feminists like Camille Paglia saying that, oh, it's just a night of bad sex and that women should just be trying to humiliate men. And, you know, she, she went on this. And I'm like, and I'm thinking to myself, like, why isn't, like, like I'm thinking to myself, I remember raising my hand. I said, could you, uh, uh, could you explain a little more? Could you expand upon that? I've heard her name so often. Like, what's she about? And she went on a, like a min, just a mini diatribe against Paglia. And I just found those ideas so compelling and actually real and um i i could tell that she could see the excitement on my face and i i sensed this like kind of maternal shutting down of it so i dropped out maybe i dropped out the next term um and uh i came back to new york where i grew up and it wasn't until a couple of years later that I that I really fully delved into the into Polly's work. I was just so taken by it. And what really um, spoke to me was her valuing of artistic work, um, and that she thinks of the artist as somebody who works with their hands, um, and that, that that she respects the process. Um, yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, 
I mean, people read, you can read her many ways, similar to Mariah Carey, you can listen to her many ways. I mean, there's the literary critic, the art critic, the social critic, the, you know, kind of wild ideologue, pundit, whatever. But I, I mean, f- over time, I've come to see how, like, reading her on a psychological level, it's really fascinating because she's building a lot on Freud's insights, Nietzsche's psychology to an extent, if you could call him, you know, a psychologist. Um, but yeah, I, I want to hear from you. Like, how was reading her helpful for you on a personal level? Aside from like the art criticism, the the connection with music, like for your yourself, like what was most useful about reading her? Um, I think I'll I'll get there um, as I kind of talk it out. But I mean, immediately uh, knowing the difficulty uh, with which she had getting published. Yeah the kind of 20 years or so of just kind of kind of nose to the grindstone kind of like hidden you know kind of being hidden away and kind of like taking her time and trying to find work and not really finding work and like having trouble like maybe being taken seriously by the establishment um, being shut down by the establishment for, for 20 years, right? That she didn't get a sexual persona. Like yeah, yeah. Um, but imagine, like, how much you really have to believe in yourself and your project to wait 20 years. Like, that's crazy. I know. I thought five years for my own project was more than enough time. It's, I started writing the material on the record in, like, 2017, uh, 2018, and I finished maybe, like, early 2020. And I dealt with a lot of just, like, rejection and a lot of just, like, um, just a lot of rejection, a lot of um, different, uh, just, like, financial troubles, trying to get the work done, running into, like, practicality, people not wanting to work with me, all kinds of uh, experiences that stalled the the completion of my first record that, I don't know, if I didn't have Polya's example... Maybe I would just... I'm sure I would have stuck to my guns, but I would have felt even more lost. I remember feeling lost when I discovered Palia. I remember the kind of value of... I remember feeling um, kind of enthralled by the process of making art and making music, but not not feeling valued in any way by any kind of, like, intellectual that was talking about art art was always spoken of as some kind of conspiracy or or with some kind of ulterior motive in mind um but what i found in palio was somebody who understood the artistic process and the artistic process across the human record um into the distant past um that artists are real weirdos you know as she puts it you know she says think of dante you know dante was you know was expelled by his own city and he spent years you know penning an epic poem putting all of his enemies in hell like she she, and the way she completely identified with that that just it all just made so much sense to me um and and the way she values taking your time as an artist you're not on anybody's clock but your own um there's such a rush now especially to put out material and to market it and to 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 stake out an audience but I think the real work of an artist, a lot of the time, happens alone. Yeah, and I mean, so when you read her art and literary commentary, criticism, like, you get a sense that art is something of, 
like cosmic proportions like it's not because i don't know when i was in college they really reduces just its political implications which sure they're there they matter they were talking about but if you reduce art to just politics like it's so much more than that but also it's boring like there's a certain point where you want something like that asks deep questions about human nature and the cosmos and you know why do we act the way we do like what is beauty what is evil and when you read her like you get the sense that the universe is expanding and i just wonder like if you look at universities now like i don't know people are miserable kids are miserable because you have them reading judith butler you have them reading these post-structuralists and as as Pauline says like all people know how to do is sneer now like no one knows how to like delve deeply and say like what is again what is most true what is most beautiful and profound right? i have something in mind that i want to say but the first thing that comes to mind is one of my favorite moments of Polya, she's. I think she's at the Yale Political Union or something like that, and she's. She says. Uh, that was epic. This little five-year-old wants to go to the big gay unicorn place. Good job, Upper West Side parents. <laughs> that was. I would have loved that. One. I loved that. There's this moment of Polya where she 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 goes on this minute-long song. Uh, you posted this video. It's my one of my favorite ones. My favorite ones, and she says. Um, says these women they don't know how to read an image you know when you open harper's bazaar when you open vogue you have to feel everything going back to classical athens you have to feel everything from botticelli's nudes uh through to titian to giorgioni to delacroix angra coming right down into this image but these ladies ladies coming out of the english departments were the backbones of women's studies they don't know how to look at an image yeah no i remember the one where she, i think this is when she was younger she was sitting at a conference like a lacanian conference and they showed a picture and the woman was like decapitation and then like she had a hissy fit but yeah no i mean it's but venus venus de milo lost uh gained everything by losing her arms yeah exactly so so yeah okay but it's again you see how people become miserable when you suck this cosmic sense out of the arts um because you're basically denying people have souls that there is something deeper beyond the political level this is um how i began uh as what began really as prompts for lyrics for the first record and even um onto the second record um the, the the record the album that i'm writing now that i'm composing now that i haven't recorded yet um takes a different tone um there's more of a tone of like gratitude and familial bond and and friendship there's like a recognition of the people in my life who i love um but on the first record i was dealing with just a lot of uh loneliness and isolation and sadness which is why the tone of the first album is so kind of down um but i was really waiting through all that stuff but uh as you as you were saying that um the kind of academic political slant on art lacks a soul and what i was kind of building when i was writing my first record um i was using as prompts um observations like on my daily walks connections i was making in my mind things that don't really have a place in day-to-day conversation but are kind of perfect but are like perfect for the song form the song form is a place for all these like synchronicities all these observations that make no sense that that are maybe that might make sense but would be so like 
uh, like uh, to, 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 to sit you here and spend five minutes explaining oh why this song you know why the lyrics in the song make sense to me it doesn't have the same effect as just making that that lyrical connection or that musical connection um, again, yeah. just observations of the cosmic of the cosmos, observations of of the emotional cosmos, of of things you see in the world. Again, that just only makes sense in music. Yeah. So this sense of like the poetic, which doesn't, um, which captures something that transcends like pure rationalism. And you know, I was like you were saying last night. You texted me about the last chapter, the Emily Dickinson chapter. And so I started rereading it. And first, like, okay, you understand how how much Palia values poetry as a really distinct literary form that, again, captures the sense of mystery, what's between the lines, which can't be articulated with pure rational thought. But also her writing, especially in that chapter, like, as a scholar, she's a poet. Like, she's not dry and boring like these post-structuralists. Like, she's so, like... You're on the edge of your seat. She's poetic. She's artistic in her scholarly writing. Yeah, I've written down um, some of these passages from the Amherst Madame de Sade chapter. Um, there's a moment where she, oh, right. She says um, of this poem of Dickinson, she describes, uh, she says she writes, God has shrunk like the embalmed head of Queequeg's totem. The poet sits him on the makeshift scales of human judgment. It's supper time communion or cannibalism yeah yeah um uh, thought is paralyzed with the brain dropped like a handkerchief she writes in response to this line out of uh dickinson where dickinson uh, says i've dropped my brain right and she goes on she says but such an object will hardly float to the floor we hear a muffled thump like the paper boy hitting the stoop with the evening edition yeah, no, she she picked, but that's the thing, like, if you were, most university professors would read that and, like, find, again, some, like, political kind of reading, but, like, again, Polly is reading deep into these, these, like, spiritual cosmic implications that are much more fascinating. These impressions from, from the world itself, these impressions, these kind of almost mundane things, like the paper hitting the stoop, that carries with it such significance, but the, and those things are felt. Um, again, the, the, the what operates, how she talks about, um, there's one interview where she talks about her thinking, like her most deep and complex thinking is happening below uh, the level of like signification, below the level of rational meaning. Um, this is why she, she says she values her dance students and her yes. music students so much is that they understand this. They have like an intuitive knowledge of world yeah what's interesting when she talks about her students because first of all like she adjuncted for years like all over the place community colleges now she's at university of the arts in philly but yeah like what's what you see is that she's worked mostly with artists whether that's dancers or visual artists or musicians but also like mostly working class urban people of color and she always like like notes the the cultural, but also like the, I guess like the intellectual difference with that population because they have a much more earthy, carnal way of processing information as opposed to this kind of like the WASP establishment. Even even if you're not a WASP, even if you're not an Anglo-Saxon Protestant, like the elite establishment wants you to think of this very detached, very cold, rational way. Whereas if you're a dancer, if you're coming from the city, if you're black, if you're Hispanic, like you have a different read on human nature, beauty, these dynamics. It's interesting because when I was um, 
Well, when I was an undergrad, I had a really well-rounded experience, and it's part of the reason why I did so well there. Um, and um, although maybe studying philosophy wasn't the best choice that I made, um, those the faculty there at Purchase College really cared about us, and they really wanted to enrich um, our thinking. Although there were some trends among a couple professors who, who I still value and love, um, that, that, that kind of geared more towards the kind of Marxist or political or kind of post-structuralist. Um, but there was always counterweight to that. There were always other options offered. But when I got to graduate school, and they really warned me against graduate school, every professor who I approached when I was an undergrad and I said, I want to go to graduate school, they said, no, you're not doing that. They said, no. Those are going to be the worst years of your life. You don't do it. But I was stubborn. It's really stubborn. Uh, good thing I listened. I avoided that. <laughs> yeah. So I just want to speak to this, what you were just saying. Um, I had this experience when I got to grad school because they were trying to really mold you into this waspified version of yourself. And yet they're all about diversity and BIPOCs, yeah. but not like Ironic. actual like people of right, color. Right, right. Yeah. Ironic. But um, I had this experience where I got there. I couldn't keep up with the reading schedule, first of all. Um, but second, that was when I, I, I was given my first harp. And I kind of escaped into that world. I, there was such a pull in opposite directions. And it's clear uh, which direction I, I chose. Um, but I, I remember that first year... Uh, just trying to write my papers but I was always taken up with a kind of music and a kind of music that they were trying to cut out of you I remember specifically there was one class where we were uh, the professor I feel like she was trying to get back at us um, she assigned this book by Jasper Puar it's called Terrorist Assemblages um, and she was using it as an example of what not to do. And I remember she pointed to a certain run of what was really academic jargon. And it wasn't a good book. But she was like, she's like, see, there's like a rhythm to it. And it's like, lady, what do you know about rhythm? <laughs> I don't know. Wow. But, um, but yeah, there was just a real kind of battle uh, and myself that year between these kinds of just like I, this kind of careerist academic minded uh, self they were trying to pull out of me and what was really going on which was just like um, I remember uh, introducing uh, my roommate to the music of Joanna Newsom and he fell in love with it and I fell in love with it again by listening to it with him and all those rhythms in her works and all of her poetry all the all the all the ways that she colors her language I was taken up more by that yeah. than what I was there to do in the institutional setting. Uh, okay. Interesting. Yeah, no, I mean, it's amazing how the institution will suck out the passion for whatever content you're studying. But no, but so then I wanted to go into, like we were mentioning before, the Jordan Peterson interview, which kind of, I think, jump-started her resurgence into popularity, especially amongst, you know, us, younger crowd. But um, there's a point in the interview where they start talking about, like, the Freudian themes. He's bigger on the Jungian stuff, but, you know, there's overlap. Yeah, so the, the great mother. Um, the archetypes, basically. And I, like, from that interview, but also reading all of her stuff, for me, the Freudian stuff has been a big help because my, all my life, like, since I was very young, like, my parents sent me to psychologists, and they were all behaviorists. Like, it was always CBT, 
And when I ask these bigger questions about like deeper issues in my psyche, but also like spiritual questions, always dismissive. It's always like, how do we reframe your thinking? You know, it's not as deep as you think it is. Just you know, everything's fine. You just got to be comfortable with yourself. And reading her, I was like, wait, no, like I'm pretty fucked up. Like learning behavioral, it's not going to get to the root of because with Freud and with to a greater extent with Hume, like they understand that there's a cosmic dimension to our psychological struggles. There is something spiritual going on, which she really gets. It's when I when I discovered Palia and when I heard her speak in interviews, when I watched you know footage from the '90s of her, um, there was this like immediate feeling of like, oh my god, somebody somebody feels and understands this artistic mania, this creative mania that I can't seem to quell. This kind of like. All these psych. She understood the the cyclical nature of creativity, the cyclical hi- nature of like history and the cosmos. All these circles. She she got it. She gets it. And yeah, part, part of it's because first, like she's Italian, so like naturally you're gonna get those things. Grew up in a you know culturally Catholic environment, so these archetypes, the the drama of you know good and evil and the flesh, all that. Um, but it's like, it was very clear to me that the psychological establishment really will not allow any Freudian, any type of psychoanalytic kind of discourse to our detriment, though. Because, like, reading her, like, it can actually free you because you have, you are able to label some of the things going on. Because you don't have to agree with every conclusion that, that she writes or states, um, as she said about Freud. Um, it's not about the conclusions or the answers um, that he came up with. Those were always tentative. Um, but it's about the kind of thinking that he opened up, the kinds of questions that he posed. Um, you don't go to Freud for his, for like, his explanations of X, Y, and Z of you know any given psychic phenomena. But it's, um, yeah, it's the questions that he opened up kind of creative thinking yeah and i mean ultimately with the edible stuff and the mommy and daddy issues like sure it's outlandish but when you really engage with it you see that it's very useful because most people do have issues with their parents that are unresolved and again if we're only looking from a surface level behaviorist point of view you're not really going to resolve these issues and again what freud and jung are getting at is like our relationship with our parents reflect this greater cosmic struggle that we experience between ourselves and the creator the forces of good and evil and light and dark whatever um so i don't know like i found pally was my way into freud and that stuff i find to be very practical i don't know about you when she says things like when she says things like i i I don't think violence um you know quote i don't think violence in the media causes violence on the contrary i think it causes passivity and inaction there's an ontology there there's there's there are these i I feel like and i can't articulate it fully but um in an intuitive way there's there are statements about being about our being about cause and effect um about the human drives and the human emotions that I think kind of goes back to Spinoza, although I'm sure many will disagree with me. That's interesting. But um, both, both philosophers, Paglia and Spinoza and Nietzsche and Freud, uh, understand nature. Yeah. 
Um, that there's something given to us. It's not just this mechanistic enlightenment, autonomous, like, no, like there are these forces beyond our control, whether it's God, whether it's the universe, but like there's something outside of us, which makes life very dramatic and unpredictable. Yeah, um, I don't know if I should, I, I don't know in which direction I should go. Because I could speak on the way I value uh, I value what Spinoza wrote about um, consciousness um, that our, it is our perception that kind of reverses the order of cause and effect and what we take uh, what we, you know we witness an effect in the world and we take it to be the cause um, that consciousness does it with itself that it believes itself to be the author, the seed of all of our actions, when the causes for those things are deeper and not so easily explained. Although there are explanations for them, Spinoza would would argue. Um, but, the, you know, it is not... Right, what does he say? Uh, consciousness takes... Uh, for, for cause, what really is an effect. So while we're talking about Germans... The, like the most valuable thing not the most valuable thing but one of the valuable things that like she does with Nietzsche's thought is when she applies it to like the current university system because her whole like thing against the middle class white girls the wasp bourgeois whatever like it's everything they do is Nietzschean resentment like it's pure resentment like the sneering that she's always talking about like it's these unresolved conflicts whether it's with daddy whether it's an issue with the guy jealousy of other girls like and that's one of the other things that I feel like Red Scare has really taken from Pallion, taken, you know, brought it really far. But, like, on a psychological level, that resentment is, uh, when it doesn't go addressed, it creates these these psychos, these people who are, like, getting out of hand, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I wish I had m more to say about that, but you put it really well. Um, I, love, I, I love that uh, Nietzsche is really important to Dasha. I love that uh, Dasha is... Uh, interested in this what does she call it non-traditional catholic reading of nietzsche like work henny <laughs> uh, after dasha insulted me and the nietzschean stuff twice twice i started boycotting red scare i started more about that. no because so i did this exhibit about nietzsche back in february and i told Turanana like i'm quoting you in here if you want to come check it out and they're like oh cool and then people were like sending them pictures of the exhibit and then they go on the pod and they're like, yeah, apparently we're quoted at this like Catholic conference about Nietzsche. Why weren't we invited? And they're just, they're just being bitchy. Yeah. And then I wrote this article about them, about, about Nietzsche, and I quoted them in Newsweek. And they're like, this is how you know Newsweek is a failing publication because they're quoting Red Scare podcast and BAP. It's like, oh, my God. And I saw them this last weekend at, I'm not going to say who, but there was a, a reading. And I was like, hey... I'm the one who wrote the Nietzsche thing. And they're like, oh, okay. It's like, whatever. No, we love them. We hate them, but we love them. But they, no, but I'm on a serious note. They really, as much as they pretend to be, like, idiotic, there's a very smart reading, both of Pallia, but also of Nietzsche, that, like, they're applying it very well to the current generation. And, like, if only they didn't, like, do this whole, like, performance artist, like, you know, BPT art hoes. Like, they're actually very intelligent, but they won't admit they are, it. That the episode they did in 2018 with Vanessa Place, 
um, on rape jokes. I think that's like like a field guide for any artist that wants to create, um, or not wants to create, but does create material that can be seen as controversial or, or you know, engages with like touchy subject matter. That Vanessa Place episode is everything is you know among the things you I think one would really need to hear. Um, yeah, my the episode that was most helpful for me was the Ocasio Crytez one, where she was crying about Palestine. No, because they actually use Lash more than anything. A little bit of Nietzsche and Freud, but no, this millennial like the narcissism, the being desperate for attention, and then using these moral these virtue signals just to get attention i was like oh shit that's me like i am guilty of all the things they're saying yeah and that's why like so like reading these people listening to red scare i see how it's enabling me to call myself out and be like okay like i am part of this culture of narcissism of resentment and i do need to like yeah use a little bit of psychoanalysis to sort through why am i like this what's what's at the root of these issues but i don't know like it's all very practical if you do get past the performativity of it all yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know what to say in response to that, but I vibe with that. Well, I vibe with that. Let me ask that. you, do you have, like, other thoughts about just her gender stuff, like what Palio says about gender and sexual personae? There's a lot there. I don't know. Because, like, for me, the fact that, like, it's not just that she believes that in biological gender that there's a binary, but using Freud's insights she picks up on a lot of interesting gender dynamics both in literature but also in like everyday interactions that have helped me to understand myself and like so we're picking up after a brief bathroom break um so what were we saying where where, where are we going with this yeah well I didn't really want to remark um on on her kind of gender critique necessarily I don't know if I have anything new or interesting to say in that regard but um, another thing that really uh, that I find that I find so kind of thrilling about Polly's writing itself uh, is the uh, her capacity for kind of uh, uh, polysemy, like uh, you know, like multiple meanings at yeah. once, yeah. and her ability to just kind of uh, keep things seemingly like really straightforward, but there's always. Uh, several layers of meaning at play there's like um she writes in the dickinson chapter she writes dickinson's impalements are even more atrocious she quotes dickinson it is simple to ache in the bone or the rind but gimlets among the nerve mangled daintier terribler close quote gimlets among the nerve are stabs or twinges of pain a spiritual neuralgia but the metaphor demands we see boring tools like corkscrews riding through and shredding the nerve fibers. It is like a butchering surgeon's scalpel or a drunken sculptor's auger. What is a dainty mangling? This decadent juxtaposition of beauty and horror resembles Baudelaire's hideous delicacies. It is subliminally sexual Spencerian effect that few English poets attempt. The rind, opposed to bone, is human skin. Normally, only fruit, cheese, or bacon has a rind. Dickinson's rind makes the body peelable. Apollo with a potato pear. She flays the Marcius of humanity, exposing raw nerve. Man is a red-ribboned écorché in her laboratory. Wow, red like a true musician. 
<laughs> Thanks. Um, I try. <laughs> she, this allusion to Marcius, uh, the, 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 the satyr from ancient Greek lore, um, who was skinned by Apollo for challenging him. But Marcius also appears in the symposium when um, Alcibiades is raving at Socrates. And I think he compares Socrates to Marcius, to this little statuette of Marcius that you can open up. And there are little figurines of little gods inside. And that this is an allusion to, this is a description of the feeling of love to want to tear someone open to expose all the tiny little gods that are inside. Um, to have that allusion there, not only to the myth, um, to, to, to the Apollonian myth where Marcius is flayed, right? She's talking about uh, Dickinson. Dickinson's use of the word rind makes the body peelable, but also the madness of passion, the madness of love that uh, Alcibiades kind of summons up in referring to Socrates as as Marcius, as this little thing that he wants to yeah. open up. Um, yeah, again, just the level of kind of historical allusion and meaning that's present in her work. And she's not, she's not on the nose with it. She's not, uh, she's, you know, all the material is there. And if you're sensitive to it, it really hits you and it really works. Yeah. No, but I feel like that sensitivity, that receptivity, we could say. I'm sorry, I'm just staring at these like little gaggle of Upper West Side teens who just dropped a six-pack of Coronas on the sidewalk. This is why... No, never mind, I'm not going to comment on it. Um, no, like that receptivity to such beautiful, profound writing is like... Um, sucked out of like in the in the institution, the universities, like that is not encouraged. It's not cultivated, you know. But but I, though I think you know, as a writer, you should really win those stripes. Like that's something that is accomplished after many years. Yeah. You know, and it's not for the faint of heart, but it is discouraged. This kind of writing is discouraged um, as irrational, as illusory, as not to the point. Um, uh, you know, not scholarly. Yeah. So now we're going to have to get into uh, the critiques of Thalia. So Helen Andrews, let me say this first, disclaimer. So Helen is one of the editors at American Conservative. I've written them as a freelance for, yeah, for them as a freelancer. I wrote this, so yeah, it was last summer. I pitched this piece about like Thalia's second wave to them and they wanted me to mention Helen's book because, you know, it's American Conservative. Um, and then I asked her to come on the pod. It totally ignored me. So Helen Andrews, if you're listening, I'll still have you on. I'll, <laughs> I'll debate Palia with you. Actually, I mean, okay. So like, first before we say whether we agree or disagree, I guess the she was basically saying like she's the book is all about boomers who like have gotten it wrong. And first of all, I'm just like, I would never group Palia into like okay boomer archetype. She's because she's based. She's cool. Is she right about everything? No, but... So I was just surprised. Yeah. Right, it's not the point. I see um, the Helen Andrews piece. That's her name, right? Yeah, Helen Andrews. Andrews. Oh, who's fucking stunning writing. I, I was you taken... You liked it? I was taken I was like, by oh, every, every, right. every sentence. I thought right. it was really well written. 
Um, but um, I, I I saw it as as a, it came across to me more as a love letter to Polly. No, than she anything. definitely shows respect. Like she's like you know the woman may be wrong about some things ideologically, but like she's a brilliant. Oh yeah, Helen gets that for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, as for the critique, what like what Polly her crit- criticism is that Polly didn't foresee the forces that she was summoning. Um, that what that pop culture would would retard and ruin the, the minds of the young um, that we wouldn't turn into the, uh, little polios but you kind of like yeah. become even more ign- is that, is, is that um, what she's saying? What I was getting is one she's like okay Palia endorses the sexual revolution too much and the thing is Palia understands that the sexual revolution was supposed to sow chaos yes. And then her whole thing is, but you guys went for this politically correct, bureaucratic, like, no, if you want sexual libertinism, you got to be ready for the chaos, which she is, but not everyone has that kind of constitution. Like, most people are wimps and they can't handle chaos. And Helen Andrews is like, why are you, like, Pally, you shouldn't be supporting the sexual revolution at all because it's just not sustainable. And I'm like, well, they're both right. And I'm saying, like, for me, coming from, like, my ideological, my religious point of view, sure, I don't think we're made to go be fucking everybody. There's going to be consequences. I know it. But if you so choose to live that kind of life, like, I don't know. Like, I see I see what Helen's doing with that critique. So, like, I'm not going to say she's wrong. But the other one was the pop culture thing that she was like, oh, you know, we got to, like, do scholarship on pop culture rather than high culture. And it's like, I know pop culture shit, but that's that's what it is. Like, pop culture is pop culture. It's always going to be here. So if we don't theorize about it... It says uh, that pop culture is American culture. We have no high arts tradition um, in the United States. Um, all we have is, is pop culture. She says that's why we're not rationalists. That's why the post-structural turn makes no sense in an American context, because we have no rationalist heritage to be revolting against where the culture quote yeah to quote her where the culture that invented hollywood for god's sake yeah i mean i do think it would be ideal if we all became little palios because she does create this great synthesis between high and low culture um and we have people like i don't know we have warhol in a way gaga tried to do it personally yeah i mean i think my like unpopular opinion is that Rosalia is the runner-up or the like the she is carrying on this legacy of high and low because she's cl- classically trained in flamenco like she knows real music she's very in touch with like the lowbrow mass culture of TikTok but also like Latin pop reggaeton dembo like she's able to create a synthesis that's sure she's a cultural appropriator who gives a shit like it's very intelligent and it's i just feel like underappreciated so i don't know there's but yeah and she always sounds frightened yeah like she's just seen a mouse yeah (laughs) (laughs) um the spanish temperament no so i i mean i i I get helen andrew's critique yeah but i'm just like uh, i'm just not I'm not here for criticizing Palia. Like, I don't agree with everything she says. Like, there are certain things I'm just, you're totally wrong. Um, like, her criticism of Lady Gaga, I'm like, you don't really get her. But I don't know. I'm just not going to write a chapter being like, I mean, I did write a Substack post about 10 things I disagree about her. But no, but that was just like for fun. I, I don't know. Helen Andrews, at the end of the day, come on the pod. 
love to hash things out with you, but you're not wrong. No, I don't think she's wrong. Um, I think it's maybe the most level-headed criticism of Polya that I've seen. I've seen another one where somebody was somebody did not like her reading of the birds. Yes. Um, do you remember that yeah. one? And the dude was like, "Why do I care that you that that you thought this to yourself?" It's like you have no personality in your own writing, dude. Yeah. Like, um, and that's something that she, that kind of like those little those Pollyan asides. Where, where she tells you what she's thinking or what she experienced in a moment. That's what she gets from, like, Pauline Kale. Which is interesting to me. Yeah. Another kind of, um, in the spinozistic line, in my, in my yeah. like, perceived spinozistic line of people who don't s- 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 separate. Uh, what is, is there something Pauline Kale said that all of you reacts all at once at this, this notion of, like, impressionistic reactions and things like intuitive oh no you're either you know what are you cleft as a human being that you're not all reacting at once like that's again that's another thing in the kind of enlightenment or mechanistic kind of yeah no it's just this disintegration of the being of the soul the psyche the body i don't know with helen one last thought it's like as much as she does say, like, she holds Pally in esteem, I just think it's weird for conservatives, conservatives, quote-unquote, to be criticizing her, because, like, sh- you're basically on the same side as her. Like, she believes in objective truth, in a gender binary. Like, no done more good work yeah, for... Like, if you're a conservative... Yeah. Critiquing her, like, cringe, no. <laughs> like, the f- most of these conservative outlets, like, first thing, City Journal, like, go crazy over her, even though they disagree about the porn and the abortion and whatever but anyway speaking i'm sorry i'm just noticing the new york link thing the box oscar wilde memorial bookshop happy pride oscar wilde would not go to the pride parade he had no hell no hell no i've never been to a pride yeah i've never wanted to be there i think thanks i think it's like a terrorist hot spot like people are definitely gonna get shot not that i want that to happen at all but i'm just afraid of any like mass gathering i don't even like to go to malls anymore because i'm afraid i'm gonna get shot I don't know. I think that's a reason to go to the mall. Probably. Um, anyway, anyways, Eric, any, yeah, let's go to any plugs you have. What should people check out? What do you want to tell the people about? I have my, um, my page that's at hamburger.helpless. That's on Instagram that I work on pretty much every day. Um, you can find the link to the uh, fundraiser for um, my first record, uh, I'm trying to raise some funds so I could get the thing mastered so that y'all can hear it. Um, there's also hamburger.harpist, which is just a page with just me playing harp. But, um, but yeah, that's all I really got right now. So I'm like, thank you so much for coming on. This Thanks was a good for having time. me.